from Carry the Load, these are Lessons from the Front, stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. This is going to be one of the more entertaining interviews, I think, just because um, I don't know that I've had anyone on who I know to the degree that I know Gary Billiou. So Gary Billiou is a Marine of 30, 28 years? Working on 29 right now. Working on 29 years. Uh, you have been a, a city councilman um, in Sanger, Texas. You and I served in three different units, so I can verify that you were actually in the Marine Corps. <laughs> and you are a, uh, a husband, a father. Man, you got, uh, you got, and you've been a realtor, all kinds of stuff. So, first of all, Gary, thanks, man. I appreciate you uh, coming on. Sure. And it's, it's, it's really, it's almost difficult for us to have a, a, a serious conversation because uh, of the jousting that we have done for years. Yeah, it goes back to 94. Yeah. 94. We're 1994. First That's uh, that was a long time ago. Yeah. I'm surprised you can count to 29. Well. 94, 29. Use my fingers that? and toes and <laughs> yours as well. So you uh, you are right now, let's just, let, let's kind of start with where you are right now in your career. You're about to retire. You're coming up on retirement. Yes. You weren't really planning on necessarily retiring, um, but the the federal mandates as far as vaccinations and i'm just jumping right into this because i think sure. it's a, a a very interesting topic and it's very timely uh really put you in a position where you did not have a choice the government said you have to get uh you have to get stuck with the vaccination and you said what well it's interesting how you phrase that that i didn't have a choice i think they would say you have a choice do it oh or you're going to be processed out of military service. That was your choice. And you and I would characterize that as, that's not much of a choice. Right. So there was a deadline. There was a line in the sand. You had to get it. And, and, and I understand it. And I think it's everyone's choice if they want to get the vaccine or not. But the one thing that my situation was a little different is I had COVID early on. And I was also tapped by the Marine Corps to set up the first community vaccination center here in Texas, first one in the Marine Corps. And, and so um, they were trying to get everyone vaccinated that was a part of that uh, CVC. Well, but there, were, there was a condition, and, and, and I was flagged on the list of not being vaccinated and said, here's why. It's COVID positive. No symptoms. So, so did you have it before vaccines were even available? Yes. Okay. Yes. So when the vaccines uh, came out shortly thereafter, they said that there was a 90-day window. You couldn't get the vaccine for 90 days. And so being the good grunt that I am, I said, why 90 days? What's significant about 90 days? And across the board, it was arbitrary. Essentially, it was arbitrary. Nobody knew the impact. And they said, well, we're giving it 90 days. And then you can get the vaccine. So during that 90 days and being involved and on a daily basis with this vaccination center, all the medical professionals, the medical doctors, the nurses, the pharmacists, people administering 
uh, these vaccines, I asked a lot of questions. And people had opinions, and they varied. But as a grunt, keeping things simple, the one thing that, that people say it's safe, people said it's not safe. I don't think anybody knew. There wasn't enough data. These vaccines just hit the street. I know there was a long line. We gave 165,000 shots, and, and I get it. But I asked the question the entire time, what about those that had it? What about natural immunity? Nobody would address that. And, you know, the, the federal government just recently started addressing that. And we're, what, two-plus years into it. But in those days, it was, it was not one of the legitimate um, exemptions. There were two exemptions that, at least from the Marine Corps, they were offering. One was medical and the other one was religious. But the, the order spelled out natural immunity is not an acceptable exemption. So it wasn't even entertained. So as I brought that up and asked some very basic question, essentially, shut up in color. I mean, you either get it or you don't. Are you getting it? And I said, well, I have more questions. Well, there was a, as I said initially, there was a hard line in the sand. You had to make a decision, and you had to be vaccinated either fully or get your first dose by a certain day. Mm -hmm. And since nothing, they wouldn't even entertain natural immunity, I made the decision to drop to the IRR, the the inactive ready reserve. Right. And so so to be clear, at this point, when all this is going down, and for a while now you've been a reservist, which I want to talk about that as well because sure. being a reservist is is a lot more difficult than people think, especially as an officer. But we're going to get to that. So keep okay. going with your uh, with your natural immunity. So in 2020, 2021, you know, as a reservist, they think, and I'll just touch on it, they think you do one week in a month, two weeks right. in the summer. Well, I did five sets of orders, had uh, nearly 90 days of active duty in addition to using – all the drills, all the AT, using right. all of that stuff. So uh, being self-employed and having my own business, it suffered. So it wasn't just the, the mandate that factored in. I was away from my business for better, I mean, spread out over a year, but in right. big chunks. And uh, that, that, that was tough. But the mandate really, uh, I just couldn't get, get past that because it, it – you know, they, was they, it was the mandate when you say you couldn't get past it? Was it more of a? Um, well, I couldn't get any basic questions answered. Okay, well, let me let me play devil's advocate because you, you and I, when we first get in, mm-hmm. I mean, we're hit with a plethora of shots, mm-hmm. and I mean, you know, we've we've ingested some things, you know, through shots and and just through fumes and all kinds of things through the years that probably would have made most people immune to something like COVID anyway. So, so I mean, did you question those? Did you ever have, cause I, I don't recall us having the opportunity Correct. to say, I don't want that shot. So right. what, so what made this one so different? Well, well, you and I were, I believe on active duty, um, the whole anthrax scare came and everybody had to get anthrax, but the, the, the remedy to that was a proven remedy that had been around for generations, and I wasn't concerned about that. 
But, you know, it, it's if if you get the flu, and I understand the flu vaccine, and, and I'm not a medical professional, and I was trying to just put this in very simple terms. So when they, they do um, an analysis and they think that this is probably going to be the strain of flu that's going to come out, well, there's lead time to, to generate that vaccine. Mm-hmm. So they make the decision early on. They get that vaccine through the pipeline and get it out on the street. Chances are it's going to be the strain and the vaccine will be effective. But if it's not, then the vaccine is ineffective. But regardless, if you had the flu, you don't go get the flu shot. If you have smallpox, had it in the past, you don't get the smallpox vaccine. And, you know, the, the, the Navy handles all of our medical needs right. for the Marine Corps. And it, it states very clearly in there about certain uh, diseases that you had. If you've had it in the past, you have immunity and you don't need to get that vaccine. So it, it's there. COVID is not part of that. And my question is, what makes that different? I mean, I, I gave you the flu example. We can go through smallpox and, and other things. So why is this different? And those questions were, were never answered. They weren't going to be answered because it didn't matter. Immunity was not acceptable. I mean, nobody would even discuss it. And that's where I was just like, why, why not? Right. Okay. You said 90 days, and then you came back and said 10 days. We couldn't, when we set up our mass uh, vaccination sites, we were in one part of the city giving Pfizer. The city was had a different site, and they were doing Moderna. You could not mix the two. If somebody came in and had a Moderna first shot, we could not. We had to send them away. And now that has changed to where you can basically have a cocktail, mix and match, go get a vaccine. And I was like, why? Why are we doing this? It it changes rapidly. The one thing that didn't change was their their resolve that they would not entertain natural immunity. And I just Big question mark. Why? No, and, and and I get that, but the you know, then you look at um and obviously I don't have a dog in this hunt anymore, but right. um, you know, but my time, you know, when you know, when I was in with you, it was, you know, our, ours is not the question. That's right. not our role. So so well, how trust I, me, there was there's some pushback about you don't question. Absolutely. You, you but, follow but why, How has that changed? I mean, because it does, I mean, I'm sure there's always been a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like it's become, this has really opened the floodgates to, I think, those who serve questioning authority more than ever before. Well, Todd, and I'll play the devil's advocate. I think authority has given us reason to question more than ever because it has changed. It's a good point. Things have changed. You know, uh, my family members, immediate family members, are first responders, uh, two nurses in the family, firemen. They were vaccinated immediately, and they had either, either Moderna or Pfizer. They had it fully vaccinated. They were on the front lines, if you will, they were administering shots and doing those things, fully vaccinated. When, when it came time or, or during my decision-making for this mandate, 
every single one of my family members that were fully vaccinated tested COVID positive. And so it was get the vaccine to prevent the spread. Well, they started calling it breakthrough cases. Mm-hmm. Well, my family members fully vaccinated had those breakthrough cases. I have neighbors on my left and right fully vaccinated in quarantine because they got COVID. There were so many of these breakthrough cases that it was not preventing the spread. And now I think the government has acknowledged, well, it's not going to prevent it, but it, their symptoms were mild because they were it, vaccinated. Yeah, it lessens the severity of the right of the disease. Well, I was COVID positive in my immunity. That was never addressed. It's just now starting to surface yeah. that natural immunity is more effective than the vaccine. Sure. That's fine. If it's not, that's fine. But the fact that nobody would address it, answer some basic questions. It well, just, I, I don't think it, I don't think it's that they wouldn't. They couldn't. You know, and that's, you know, that well, wouldn't, that's, couldn't. They weren't being addressed. Right. And so that was essentially told that doesn't matter. I mean, there's, there's no more frustrating occurrence as a leader when you're given a mission and you can't, and you don't have all the answers. I mean, mm-hmm. and I, and I know that that was probably one of the things that, you know, that really frustrated you because you've got to answer to your Marines mm-hmm. and they've got a lot of the same questions. And if you can't get your head wrapped around it, if you can't get comfortable with it, and that's why I was saying, you know, it, you know, ours is not to question, right? Ours is to do right. Um, and so, you know, that's where I have, have definitely seen a big shift. And, and you know, you bring up a good point. Um, you know, we were talking, you know, before all of this about a couple of instances where, you know, quite honestly, the, the government has not done a good job and have given people reason to question authority, mm-hmm. um, which hopefully, you know, we can we can get through and past all of this. But what's what's well, the where do things stand for you now, though? Are you are you going to be forced to? Uh, no, I can, I can retire at any time. And, and so if, if I would have retired before COVID, I could have kept all the benefits, mm-hmm. you know, the, the retirement benefits, the health care, the education for my kids. But if I did not get that shot by this, this uh, arbitrary line in the sand, mm-hmm. health care goes away, pension could go to what go away. And, and all the, the, the education benefits for my kids. That's where there was a big question mark. We didn't know what the penalty was going to be anywhere from just a discharge to dishonorable. Well, that's a big spectrum. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to believe that you could get a dishonorable discharge for this. Well, but that question wasn't answered. We just knew it was going to be uh, negative paper. You're going to have bad paper. And depending on the severity of that paper, you could lose all your benefits. Well, that's not a risk I was willing to run mm-hmm. after, you know, almost I, I had, I had just gone over 28 years when that happened. And um, so if I would have retired six months earlier, I'd have all my benefits. Now I was really rolling the dice. I could lose everything. Everything. And I still don't know how they're actually processing people out, but that is what's what's happening. So you've dropped to the IRR at this point. I have. Okay. And the IRR. So those mandates don't apply to to the status I'm in. 
So it gives me time to take a knee, uh, repair the damage to my business, and see how this is is panning out. But I, I'm gonna, I'll make a decision. Just if 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 I wanted to retire today, it takes a minimum four months for all that paperwork to process. Yeah, and for for people who aren't aware, the the IRR is the inactive ready reserve, which means let's say something happens over in in Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. which is a whole other topic, and um, you know, and and it, you could be called back into active service from the inactive ready reserve. Oh yeah. Until I resign my commission, I'm, I'm on the table. That's right. So that's right. Uh, I have no problem with that. I'm just trying to see how this pans out. Yeah. And, and I, and I want to, you know, for, for viewers and listeners, I think it's important to point out, you know, we, we never like to talk politics on this show. Right. But you know, it, you, you can't avoid topics like this. They have a political slant Yes, and you know, and I'm I'm looking at it from the personal angle. I mean, it, it's got to be tough. I mean, here you are. You've given, you know, 28, 29 years of of just unbridled service, and now all of a sudden it could come down to if you don't get this right. needle in your arm, you get bad paper, and that and that's that's a hard pill to swallow. It is, or. A needle to take. I mean, it 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 really it really is. Um, so, I I never thought it would come down to this. I really really didn't. But it, it is what it is. And moving forward, um, I, you know, I, I told people, I never thought when I enlisted, I'd, I'd be there thirty years. Right. But uh, then it became a personal goal. Because I enjoy it, the Marine Corps always recharged my batteries, and so um, always there, raise my hand, go where I'm needed, and understood that when 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 I got off active, and a lot of duty, times they raised your hand for you. Well, yeah, <laughs> but uh, never, never said no, never said no, and and I didn't say. I guess essentially I said no, not getting the jab, but but. Uh, I, I still don't know. I don't think we'll know for a long time the impacts of, of the true impacts until we get time and data. And I've noticed that that everywhere I've gone to try to get questions answered and would would hear some very common sense, valuable information, a lot of those people were canceled and you, you can't find it anymore. And and now some of the podcasts uh, seeing some of the prominent physicians that uh, either develop the vaccine or, or, you know, the authorities in those mm-hmm. fields, those were very interesting podcasts. And it answered a lot of my questions that, as you said, people probably could not answer. Maybe they didn't have the credentials. Maybe they weren't allowed to. I don't know. But the questions weren't being answered. And a lot of these were for me. So for me in my situation, that was the right decision. So. I, I tell people a little bit about what it's like to be a a reserve officer, which is, and and you know, to give people your a little bit of your background, you enlisted, finished school, went to OCS, went to infantry officer course, served on active duty, and then transitioned into the uh, the reserves. Yes. So there's a big difference between being a reservist and being active duty. And there's a really big difference between being a reserve officer and a reserve enlisted Marine. Yes. And you, you hit 
You hit both sides of that. Yes. So I, I think that it, it boils down to, do you want to serve or not? Mm-hmm. And when, when you go to the reserves, you, you have more control as an officer where you can go and what you can do. But there's a lot of work that, that needs to be done. So if, if you're, and you have to make that mental shift and, you know, we're on active duty. It's all about leading Marines and, and being on the pointy end of the spear, being in the fight. Well, the reserves were never that sexy, but there were a couple of things going on in the world that, that changed the reservist role, Iraq and Afghanistan and active duty with the rotation. The reserves were heavily involved in that. And so, um, as long as I felt like I could contribute and, and, and bring something to the fight, then I felt it was my responsibility to do that. But what a lot of people don't understand is that as a reserve officer, you may show up to actively, you know, put on the uniform mm-hmm. one weekend a month and two weeks a year. That's where the go, Marines. Yeah. It, it goes it, far beyond that. Yeah. Good example. We served together at, at weapons company. And uh, I went to Iraq with them. But as, as the commanding officer, I would drill with the Marines one week in a month. Well, I was also the fire support coordinator for the battalion. And so our battalion commander wanted to have the staff. So explain to people what that is, a fire support coordinator. So essentially, um, uh, we have rifle company commanders, and then we have a weapons company commander. The rifle company commanders train their Marines. I mean, we all train our Marines as as a unit, as a mm-hmm. company. But in the fight, when we actually go to war, the rifle company commanders stay with their company. Mm-hmm. The weapons company commander goes to battalion. So all of my assets that I train get farmed out and, and either direct support, they're attached, or general support of different units. And I go to battalion and I coordinate the fires for the battalion. So... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, all the air assets, all the artillery, uh, the, the battalion mortars. So I'm choreographing the uh, fire support for all the units out there. Okay. So, so we the, would go, I would go adi- an additional weekend to train with the battalion staff for those duties. At the same time, I was going through command and staff college and I was doing it, um, the distant education program to where we would meet one weekend a month. So three weekends a month, I was doing Marine Corps duties, not counting all the emails and phone calls and coordination leading up to it. That's what people don't realize. It is a full-time job. And, you know, there are a lot of, you know, I think another big difference that a lot of people don't realize is you can kind of come and go as you please. There's no, there's no firm commitment as a Marine Corps officer in the reserves. Right. You know, I mean, that's, you know, and that's how we ended up at, uh, well, but I, I'd use that same model with those reserve officers mm-hmm. that, um, said, if you're going to come here, I need officers because yep. for about 18 months of that, I was the only officer in my company. Were so, you really? Yes. And we were short on officers and our battalion commander was actively trying to recruit officers, bring them in. So when uh, somebody wanted to come to weapons company, I'd meet with them. Like, great, here's the deal. I need a year commitment. Yeah. Year commitment. At month 11, if the balloon goes up, 
expect you to go. And that weeded out most of the officers. Yeah. And so I remember having a conversation with the battalion commander. He came down to see me and was like, you know, what the heck's going on? I've sent you three officers this month and you ran them all. No, sir. Here's what I told them. I set the expectations. Yeah. And they didn't, they wouldn't commit. And I would rather have a, a sergeant or a staff sergeant step up and be a platoon commander and learn that job because they can always go back. But to learn that job and, and be proficient at that job versus them ping-ponging back and forth every right. month because a new officer showed up. We're not going to have that. And and I think uh, it built a, a lot of uh, – it boosted morale. My staff NCOs and NCOs, I think, respected that. They knew I was committed to them. And if I found somebody and vetted them and had the commitment, they would go down because they knew that guy was going to be there yeah. next month. Well, and that was – I mean, when we showed up at Weapons 123, that was how we got there. Uh, Matt Good. Matt Good said, I need a year. Roger. I mean, you know, which was a fair commitment. I mean, and, you know, the the strange thing for me was, you know, I gave that that year. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the year, I said, man, my my personal world is just, it's going too fast and furious. I can't do it. I don't have the bandwidth of a Gary Billu. Well, I told him your car broke down and you're too cheap <laughs> to fix it. Well, yeah, he knew that wasn't the case, but... Uh, yeah. So, and then, and then it, right after that, six months after, uh, after I pulled the ripcord and, and got out all together, mm-hmm. you guys end up in Iraq. Yeah. And, um, that was, uh, that, that, that's again, what a lot of people just don't realize is you can go from, from being, you know, Sammy civilian one day, you know, for the majority of your life, literally one day later you've got the uniform on and you've got rounds coming at you. Well, you got to make a commitment. It, it, it always goes back to the junior Marine, the junior Marine and don't put on the uniform because it's cool or in vogue or, or, or whatever. And then when, when it counts, when it counts, you bail that, that is not fair. And so I'd rather, I'd rather absorb all that friction along the way in training and find the right person right. that's going to lead Marines and that I can count on, but more importantly, that junior Marine can count on. And uh, and I will tell you this, I, I think what the guys I brought in all did more than a year. And in fact, you know, some of them said, I'm going to try this for a year. Well, I know for a fact that two of them are still in and went on to take battalion command and they couldn't give it up. They was in their blood. Those were the right guys. Sure. And and so, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, whether you're in the, in the, you know, business world or whether you're recruiting reserve officers, sometimes not hiring somebody is the best hire you can make. And I mean, I just, I just went through this recently. I mean, there was somebody that we wanted to hire and I, and I, I, I pulled it out and I said, no, we're not, we're not going to do it. And it turns mm-hmm. out it was the right decision. The guy was a jack wagon, but yeah. Um, so when you went to Iraq, mm-hmm. you're sitting at a checkpoint, big boom goes off. Next thing you know, you're holding your thumb. Yeah. Well, you know, we went to Al-Assad and and relieved an active duty battalion 
And so we had our, our area of responsibility. Well, to the north of us in Haditha was a battalion landing team. So they were, an act, and these are both active duty units. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a week before first invasion of Fallujah. That battalion gets tapped to go to Fallujah. I get tapped 13 vehicles. 61 Marines to go take over the area responsibility for 1,100 Marines, active duty Marines. This was going to be very interesting. And I remember getting on a, on a, on a, uh, a Huey flying up there. So, so you, you anticipated that it was going to be interesting. Here you are a reserve officer taking over. No, not that it's just, or, or just the whole, the, just the geography. Okay. I mean, this is the area of responsibility right there on the Syrian border, Haditha. It's a huge area that 1,100, roughly 1,100 active duty Marines are, are actively patrolling every single day, taking casualties, catching bad guys, just all the things they're trying to do. And now take 13 vehicles and 61 Marines, and you have their mission. I was like, all right, we need to manage some expectations here. And so I get on a Huey, fly up there to do a, a route recon, an aerial recon. And, and this, was, this was what year? 2004. Four. Mm-hmm. And luckily, and the Marine Corps, small Marine Corps, um, when, when my last active duty um, uh, assignment, I was executive officer of a boat company. Um, some of the platoon commanders that came in, they were, you know, year, uh, 18 months junior to us, but I'd already done a deployment. This was their first. Well, one of those lieutenants was the, the three alpha, the assistant operations officer. And I get there, Ralph, Harry. And I was like, All who, right. who was it? Ralph Hirschfeld. I don't, I don't remember him. Well, he, uh, great dude, great dude. He was prior service, enlisted, yeah. uh, Texas guy. So we had a lot in common, and he actually took over for me as the executive officer when I left Fox 2-1. Okay. So here, our paths cross again. I hadn't talked to him in years, many years. And I see him, it's like, all right, give me the down and dirty. And he did. Told him what I was bringing and just saw the look on his face. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So I, I don't sugarcoat it. I want the good, the bad, and all of the ugly. And so they, uh, we went up there the first time. I did that the first time. I was there overnight, and they said, all right, false alarm, go back home. So I went back to Al-Assad two days later. Okay. It's back on. So I get up there again, and, and it's for real because when I showed up, it looked like the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, all the vehicles had every bit of gear just piled on. They were leaving. And I was like, this is on. And so um, get back down there, told my boys, saddle up, we're going. And we went. And so uh, we get there, we pull up. As soon as we got there, they were like, here are the keys to the door. We're out of here. And they started leaving. And and to be clear, who is they? The uh, uh, BLT one eight. Okay, Eighth Marines. They were had 
all their gear. And now keep in mind, they're living in Haditha Dam, mm-hmm. hydroelectric dam built in the 80s, supplied probably, I think it was 25%, maybe 30% of the power to the entire country. Okay. It was a national asset. It was a big deal. Built to house, I think, 25. So when I went in there the first time, they didn't live in, in, in the housing. They were every nook and cranny, and you're walking through these wide passageways that had cots on both sides <laughs> and, and smelled like a locker room. Oh, you know? sure. Oh, it was, yeah, very interesting. Now all that's gone. So I guess the good thing is we could pick what level of the dam we wanted to live on. Everybody had their own floor. So just a few days, and so they, they make the trek south, stop off at Al-Assad, refuel, everything they need, and then they make a beeline for Fallujah. So we immediately start running route security. And truth be told, that's really all we could do is keep the main supply routes open for, for friendly traffic to navigate. We couldn't run all the missions that they were doing, you know, those uh, uh, going in looking for bad guys. Mm-hmm all the different checkpoints. We just didn't have the personnel to do that. So we were basically running up and down, making sure, trying to keep the bad guys from putting IEDs, you know, burying IEDs. Uh, But the capabilities, you have capabilities and limitations. The capabilities of a BLT with 1,100 Marines are, are pretty large. When you get down to 61 Marines and 13 vehicles, capabilities are very small. Limitations the list of limitations are, are very lengthy. So one of the main checkpoints, and, and keep in mind there's a civilian road that runs north-south, and then uh, prior to us getting there, they had built a military road, which was off of it. So there's a checkpoint to get over to the military road, and the military road went straight down. Civilians couldn't be on the military road. So if if there was a civilian there, it's probably doing something bad. And... Every single time that was the case. There would be vehicles there. Um, I remember pulling up on a vehicle. Wasn't supposed to be there. We, we, we established security. We go up and search it. And the vehicle was, was almost bent like, a, like when you squeeze an aluminum can. It was bent like that. And there was this hole in the ground. Well, it was a bad guy putting in... A, some type of explosive device, and it went off. Now, I know it was a guy because the parts I found proved that it was a guy. Gotcha. You know what I'm talking yeah. about. So um, interesting, interesting times. So at that checkpoint to go from the civilian highway to the military road, the Iraqis that were manning that checkpoint were getting shot at, and they wanted more protection around around their little compound. Just and like like random sniper fire, or everything you think of mortar rounds, um, uh, small arms fire, all of that. And so they have these Hesco barriers, you know, that you unfold. They're wire with cardboard. They unfold like a box. Okay, and then you can just take a uh, front end loader fill it full of sand, and now you, it's essentially sandbags, but it's as big as this table. And okay. you can stack those like Legos. They wanted more of those. 
So I went to meet with the um, senior military guy there, and you know we had a golden rule: you you, you don't stay any place longer than thirty minutes because the bad guys will zero in on you. Sure, probably going to get indirect fire, small arms, something like that. Well, <clears throat> translators there were trying to go through their needs. And this was going on and on. And one of my good sergeants came in. I was like, sir, you know, hitting his watch. We need to go. So I, as respectfully as possible, uh, ended the meeting. We start walking out. And as we're walking out, uh, I can see out of the corner of my eye this car going through the checkpoint. And then all of a sudden it detonated. And this wave of smoke and debris just immediately it's on you and i rem- i remember just like a little thump just felt like a thump and then here comes this big plume of smoke and as a, the dust settles you know we're trying to assess the situation and um i remember looking down and the thumb's not there and it's just hanging in in my hand and i Listen, I don't have a high tolerance for pain. And uh, some may even call that sissy, but don't have a high tolerance for pain. But it didn't hurt. It was just, and it was probably just a rock or something that got debris that got kicked up in that explosion. But with such force, it just immediately took the thumb. We pause to ask, who are you carrying this Memorial Day? Carry the Load provides an active way to connect you to the sacrifices of our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. Our Memorial May events help bring awareness and raise funds while we march to restore the true meaning of Memorial Day. Whether you walk with us on our 48-state national relay, attend the Dallas Memorial March Memorial Day weekend, or carry it anywhere in your community, Join Carry the Load and thousands of participants nationwide as we work to honor and remember the sacrifices made for our freedom. For more on how you can join this grassroots movement, visit carrytheload.org slash Memorial May. I, I remember when you first told me about this. I just, I had this, this vision of you know, your body tenses up when something like that happens, when you hear hear a, or feel a loud bang. Mm-hmm. And it happened so fast, it sounds like, that you, as you clenched your hand, you actually caught your thumb. I mean, that that's the vision that you've given me through the years. Yeah, it was just off and, and hanging there. And I just remember looking down, and seriously, I, I as as the dust settled and I could see it, I remember thinking, that's not good, <laughs> but it didn't hurt. And I was like, okay. And, uh, and you start hearing, start, there's starting to be some activity. Marines are getting up. You start hearing the chatter and they're, they're checking to make sure everybody's all right. And one of the Marines says, everybody all right in there. I was like, yeah, we're good. And they weren't. And we, there was a staff sergeant that was with me. He was, he was an attachment from another unit and he was up there, um, you know, to assist. And he's laying there and, and he's groaning. And I turn around and I remember seeing, so these are cinder block buildings, right? A piece of shrapnel went through there and hit him in, in, in the leg, the back of the leg. 
And it, it went all the way down to the bone. And I remember him laying there on his stomach, just writhing in pain. And his camis are ripped open. And it looked like somebody took a fillet knife and just went right down the middle of his calf. It was just filleted right open. And, and he was feeling it. Mine was numb. His wasn't. And I said, get in there and, and take care of the staff sergeant. <laughs> and this one Marine was like, well, sir, you're, you're, you're injured. And, you know, we carry our, our first aid kit. We, our unit SOP was we, we had them right here over our heart, you know, left breast pocket. He reaches in there, grabs a bandage. He gets the sunken chest wound bandage and puts it on my <laughs> thumb. So, Todd, imagine going and grabbing a full paper towel roll of paper towels off the holder and just sticking it on your thumb. <laughs> and I remember telling him, I was like, God, I look like a jackass. It, this huge wad. And I remember you can't, and just trying to keep that wad out and walking around with trying to just cover that thing up. It was embarrassing. And I was you, more, you were more embarrassed than, than hurt is what you're saying. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. It was, so I'll start making the rounds, assess it with the Marines. And, and and just this one staff sergeant was the only one that was hurt. Yeah, and we had Marines set up between the blast and where I was, and I just knew there was going to be carnage. Um, I think the only other injury during that was the Marine that was in, in the turret of, of the 50 cal. He, he uh, both eardrums. I remember he had blood coming out of his mm. ears, and I thought he was wounded, and he was like, huh? And, and then I knew. Right. Yeah. But uh, I, I will tell you, I do remember this part of it. The dust settled, and I look. There was one of those HESCO bearers, a small one, in, in front of me. So it made like a walkway. And I remember the radiator being stuck right in that. Another two How, st- how close to you? Uh, from here to the wall. So another two strides, we wouldn't be here. Good Lord. I mean, you, you would have had two bags. It would have, it sliced you right in half. I mean, that thing was stuck. And the Marines took pictures and sent them to me afterwards, and, and I'll show them to you. The amount of explosives. So this was one, this was a, a black Mercedes, one of the bigger four doors. There was nothing left. It threw the engine about 100, 150 meters over the building. 150 meters. Meters. It was way over there. Shrapnel everywhere but this big black crater in the middle of the road was enormous there was nothing left 150 meters that's a long ways oh yeah i mean imagine just lobbing an engine the engine the entire engine just went up and over our compound and was 100 meters it detonated probably 75 meters from where we were so it it threw it another 75 meters past the building. It just the amount of force is, is almost unfathomable. But the beautiful thing is I I just can't believe with all that destruction that, you know, people weren't injured more severely. Absolutely. So, but I I will tell you this because I'm not trying to sound like a tough guy. We didn't have assets, right? We, we didn't have, I mean, our, the QRF, the Quick Reaction Force, got called out to the other side of the Euphrates River. Okay. It was an hour, hour and a half for them to make it back to get to our position, and we had to hold security there. Well, 
just so happens the uh, colonel and his his uh, security detail were going to be rolling through, and they said they would take over so we could get our, our wounded back. So it was probably an hour, hour and a half. Of, of which you were considered one. Well, yeah, but it, I, I call it hangnail, I mean, compared, because, listen, when I, if you get an open wound in country with all the bacteria and everything, sure. you're, you're leaving country. And that happened to me. And one of the most humbling experiences of my life was being on those medevac flights. These were kids that were missing arms and legs and disfigured from burns. And there would be entire medical teams assigned to one, one kid, one kid on a stretcher. And then when we left Germany, you'd have the family with these medical teams and that one kid. I mean, the mo- and here I am with a Band-Aid on my thumb the most humbling, unbelievable. You told me at one time a little bit about that. There was a specific incident mm-hmm. that, and, and I can I can see the emotion. And it's um, as long as I've known you, you're not one to get too emotional. But there was a specific incident that you experienced on that flight out. Yes. Tell me about that. So big, big air force ran all those major medevacs. And so, you know, I I make it in a kind of a funny story, if you don't mind before this, so I can get my bearing. When I actually made it back to Aditha Dam, uh, by that time, uh, you know, the blood was flowing and it was throbbing. It was a little painful. And, uh, but they immediately, they had a medevac come in and it, it basically got there as we got there to get that staff sergeant, uh, on. Well, there was another one in route for me and I didn't know it. And I'm trying to give a debrief to everyone and, and talking and, uh, I just had my first born. You know, we induced on a, came home on a Thursday. We induced on Friday. Saturday came home from the hospital. Was there all day Sunday. Monday, I'm on a plane to California. Wednesday, I'm in Iraq. So this is fresh. Uh, kid was month, month and a half old. And when they said, hey, you're, you're going to leave country, you got an open wound. I was like, oh, gosh. So I always told my wife that every couple of days, every two or three days, I just shoot you an email. You know, my desk job, but, you know, there's a lot of emails to answer. So uh, I knew that I, I had no idea. I just knew I'd be offline. I was like, hey, sir, uh, you know, talking to the medical officer, I, I, need, I, need the phone. I need to call my wife and let her know she's going to freak out. Just had a newborn, so can I just make a quick call? So I called her and I was like, hey. And I was like, I don't have much time. And I could hear the helicopter coming. Just want to let you know and be offline. Uh, had a little injury. I broke my thumb. I was like, well, how'd it happen? I said, no, on a vehicle. Don't worry about it. it. It's fine. But I'll call you when I can. But I'm off. I, well, tell me. I can't. I got to go. And it was that literally maybe one minute. 
And so head back to Al-Assad, on to Baghdad, get surgeries, on to uh, Balad, and then on to Germany, get off, immediately go into resurgery. And they're able to save that, put it on, and I got a what is kind of an ugly digit, but I was told that I had to pick out a toe because they were going to put a toe. And I was like, negative. You had not seen my toes, sir. I'll take this ugly digit versus a toe. So um, wake up in Germany and there is a thumb on there. So it's all good. So um, I'm waiting to get on the next flight uh, back to the States. Well, so there is this, there's this soldier, young soldier that, uh, and, and I'm sort of walking wounded. So I'm along the, the perimeter where they had these bunks three high on both sides of the plane and all these medical teams and some really, truly wounded warriors. This uh, one kid right in front of me was was up on the highest rack, but he was missing an arm. And, and it's a long flight. Um, and I kept seeing him get up, and, and I would see him help somebody else. Like there'd be someone there that was burned and needed help. He was moving their covers or, or you know, blankets or helping them get dressed. And he was doing this one arm. And I kept noticing. And so I went over and saw him getting his rack, and I went over started talking to him and keep in mind, I'm in camis, still had my rank on and just wanted to talk to him. And he told me the story that he was with the weapons company. Yeah. So am I, he was in a Mark, Mark 19 vehicle, which lobs the grenades and he was the a gunner. I'm tracking everything. I'm picking up everything you're putting down. So what happened? He said they, they went down, they were on a mission, they go down, and it was an ambush. And he said it was a tail vehicle, and an RPG was shot, and it went through. And at that time, we didn't have up armors, so it was all the fiberglass tops. So he had the turtle shell top. Mm-hmm. And he said his gunner, they were trying to break contact, and his gunner was almost out of ammo and said he needed ammo. So he said he takes the top off the can and lifts the can up, and said it fell in his lap or fell down, and then his his entire area, his legs and his his crotch area was on fire. What happened was when he picked the can up to hand it to the guy in the turret, that RPG shot through the back of the vehicle and took his arm off. It hit the passenger the back of the passenger seat, did not detonate, but it fell in his lap and continued to burn. Mm. And true grunt fashion, he was, uh, he said, but sir, I still have my valuables. And he had some colorful language, but, and he started laughing a little bit. And I was like, ah, that's a kid. And so. How how long before you met him had this happened? uh, Not long, because he had, well. I mean, it, like days, weeks? No, it had been, it had been uh, probably about two weeks because he was evacuated out, he had surgeries, and he was in a condition to where he could 
fly back to the States. And I remember him saying this, though. He said, sir, are they going to kick me out of the Army? And I just kind of looked at him. He goes, I love what I do. I just want to stay in the Army. And, and the only advice I could give him was what the Marine Corps did. I said, here's the deal. You drive on any Marine Corps base, you'll see these kids working the gate, doing different things, missing digits, uh, disfigured from burns. We will find a place for you. Our thing is you got to be able to pass the physical fitness test. And I know many Marines to this day that are still in missing legs, but they can pass the PFT. And I said, that's how the Marine Corps does it. I don't know how the Army does it, but I hope that works out. And I remember as we're getting closer uh, to Dulles, we're flying in. I think it was. It was so, what, so wait a minute. I, I want to make sure I understood exactly what happened. So he's lifting up the Mark 19 ammunition. Ammo, picks it up. So he picks it up off, the, uh, yep. off the, the floor of the vehicle, is taking it up. As he takes it up. The RPG comes through the vehicle, hits him in the arm, removes his arm. He dropped the can. It continued on to the front seat. So that's a split second, millisecond from the time it took his arm off, hit the seat, and landed in his lap. But didn't uh, detonate, so continues to spin in his lap, and the friction of that spin. Well, no, it's it's a, there's a projectile, and it's burning. And so the, the tail end, think of the exhaust, is right there in his lap burning his inside of his legs, the top mm. of his legs, his stomach, and his genitalia. So, And his biggest concern is, is the Army going to kick me out? Yeah. That's why I knew we had the best of the best. Golly. I mean, that's, you know, I, I'd love to find that kid. I know. The, uh, so... The tail end of the flight, we'll, we'll, we'll close a loop on this. The tail end of the flight, it's a long flight, and I tried to make it around to see the families and, and do some of those things. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not that, that guy. I, I'm not the let's, let's hug, let's uh, old pinky sing kumbaya. But I think there is a certain responsibility when you – You got to go and talk to him. Yeah. And so that was humble. And here you got a scratch and these kids are missing stuff. So at the end of the flight, we're, we're coming in, we're about to land and I'm, I'm just kind of dozing a little bit and somebody taps me and I look up and I see all these stars on this collar. <laughs> and I unbuckle and stand up, and I couldn't hear what was going on, but it was this three-star general. He commanded this entire uh, bunch of Air Force crafts. And he says, I'd like for you to come up and, and sit in the cockpit and see the landing. And I said, hey, sir, let me introduce you. Make sure you're. Let me introduce you to this soldier here, the kid that just told me the story about losing his arm. And I said, this 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 kid needs to go up there. 
And he said, tell you what, I can make room for both of you. So I just told him, I said, come on. He was like, you know, what the heck, sir? What's going on? And that's a general. I could see it in his face. <laughs> like, just come on. And so we get up there. But in this aircraft, you have to climb up ladders to get up to the cockpit. And so the, the general shoots right up. And so I had to help him get up the, the, the ladder to get to the cockpit. And we get him seated and um, put on. We can hear the pilots. And it, it was a different view flying in. Uh, and I said Dulles, but I think it was uh, Andrews Air Force Base where they were bringing all the wounded in. But to see the, the, the skyline and see that, that, that was pretty neat. But I uh, wanted to make sure that kid had something to remember. And I remember the general giving one of the biggest coins I've ever seen. <laughs> but uh, so it kind of busting the general's chops. I was like, hey, sir, you didn't have any pockets in that hospital gown. Anyway, that's, that's just, uh, I mean, it, it, you said humbling. Oh. And, you know, humility means a lot of different things to a lot of people. Yeah. But seeing the attitude of someone who has really at this point now less than you do. Yeah. Physically and maybe in a lot of other ways. But his attitude, it, it, it does. It makes you feel guilty. It, 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 it doesn't just humbles you. It makes you feel guilty. Yeah. For being upset that the waiter brought you the wrong thing to eat. Right. Well, I knew that, and it took me eight weeks to heal, to pass everything, to get back. And when that day came, I went back. It's what you got to do. It's like falling off the bike. Everybody falls off the bike, but do you get back on it? And I think that for me was, was the best recovery. I mean, it was the best therapy is to get back on the bike, get back in the fight and get in front of Marines again. And how do you, how do you top that? Well, I don't want to give up being in front of Marines, you know, being with Marines. So what did that experience teach you? I mean, you know, you, you've got uh, you've got boys. What did that teach you that that you can relay to them, so that they can be better individuals? Well, like I said, if, if you think you, you you can still make a positive impact and you can contribute, then you should. I mean, you just you should. Um, I don't ever want. I never want responsibility. Something, well. It is, but I still think it's a calling. And, you know, when you ask people why they went in the military, you may hear things about college money or, or uh, see the world. But, you know, the one thing they have in common is they want to serve. And, and some of us, four years just doesn't satisfy that thirst. You want to continue to serve and do things. And when you see the impacts, you know, that story that kid told me, it it's probably true with, with, with all of my Marines as well. They want to be there and they, they deserve quality leadership. They do. And all they really need, I mean, leadership is this big intangible and people have written many, many books on it. And, and, but really what Marines and, and any 
soldier or anybody in that situation needs. They need a leader that's going to make a sound decision in a timely manner. And if you can do that, if you can do that, you're going to give them what they need because their training is going to kick in. But that's easy, easier said than done. And it takes a lot of effort to be able to make a sound decision in a timely manner. It does. It does. There's nothing sexy about that, but that's what they all need and that's what they all deserve. And as long as you can do that. They're owed that. I would agree. And as long as you can do that, you're making a difference. You are. And so I know my boys are going to serve one way or another. And I will tell you personally, and I'm, I'm hardest on the leadership. I was there. I was held to a high, high standard. I hold others to a high standard as well, especially when you're the decision maker. You can't make a sound decision in a timely manner. I'm going to be very critical of you. And so um, I was disappointed to see that that wasn't as common as I, as I thought it would be. So I just hope that somewhere along the way, I had a positive influence on someone that's going to be at that position to make a sound decision in a timely manner one of my boys simple as that and 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 i'll tell you and one of the things that i you know that i took away from you know from your your story is that uh no matter how bad you think you may have it somebody's got it worse absolutely and no doubt no matter how bad you think you may have it even if you do have it bad it's your attitude that gets you through and again, that kid saying, hey, I just, I, he wasn't worried about his arm. He was worried about what his arm might lead to from the standpoint that he no longer gets to serve alongside these guys. I know. And that, I mean, that, that's just that kind of attitude. We need more of it. Absolutely. We do. And I, yeah. I mean, I'd love to find that kid and I'd love I know. to. I think about him all the time. I love telling that story just because. It's his story and what a quality individual. And I, I don't know him. I met him on a flight. How many times have we met people on a flight? This is a kid that made an impact on me. <laughs> wow. That is, that is humbling. Mm-hmm. So you, uh, you're familiar with Carry the Load. I am. Um, you know, it's, and I want to ask you who you're carrying here in a minute. Um, you know, I think uh, it it may be appropriate, though, at this point. You know, you were talking about where you served, and uh, you know, geographically and near the Syrian border. And you and I served with somebody that we lost up there, uh, Rick Gannon. Mm-hmm. Um, when 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 was he lost? Was it before or after you were there? Just before that. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking it was two thousand three or four. Yeah. No, it was two thousand four because I don't even think. We well, were it was there before yet. I went there. The reason why I. <laughs> his name popped up on my radar at that time was because uh, the active duty, the I and I, the instructor there, uh, or, or not, not at weapons company, but within the same battalion, we ended up going to Iraq together and he came over to weapons company as one of our platoon commanders. And um, we got to talking and he said, yeah, I, I know Gannon. He said, I had to do, you know, when, when one of the active duty Marines is, is killed, 
the notification is delivered by usually someone on active duty mm-hmm. in, in that geographical, uh, the nearest active duty officer in, in that geographical location. It just so happens that one of the Marines that was killed with, with, with Rick uh, was, was from that area, and he knew the story and, and knew what happened, that they got ambushed. Gannon, as a company commander, one of his Marines got wounded. He grabbed him and dragged him into this to get him out of the, the you know the path of all the fires into the nearest uh, shelter. And when they did, the bad guys were in there and shot him. So he's the one that I don't told know that I ever heard that. Yeah, I, I knew that he was that he was rescuing someone, but I didn't realize that he dragged him literally into the hornet's nest. Yes, that's that's the story, and I was was shocked. And you know, Gannon was a little bitty guy and just hard as woodpecker lips. And and uh, oh, I've got memories of of Rick oh Gannon, gosh. and some of them I can't really tell here. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> but he he always you know the thought of him makes me smile. Yeah, you know because you know you're you're right. It's it, he didn't have little man syndrome. No, but yet he he kind of. I mean, you know, he, he, he was a great guy, great attitude. You know, he, he wasn't out to prove anything to anyone other than himself. Right. But he was, you're right. He was a little guy, but man, just hard as nails. Yes. And, and so that's where we connected the dots. And we also lost a, a, another one of our friends that we served with, Ray Mendoza. Yeah. Oh, yes. So um, we've lost quite a few buddies along the way, but... Uh, you know, it, I I think that if 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 you're able to come and talk about them and share stories, or, you know, we're keeping their memory alive. I think well, it's good stuff. You know, that's obviously the whole purpose of uh, of carry the load. And, you yeah. know, they they carried a load for us, and uh, you know, it's it's now our job to to make sure that they don't die a second death by by failing to mention their name. So right. So I'll take that as you're you're carrying Rick Cannon and Ray Mendoza. Yeah, and and three of my Marines that I uh, lost over there, uh, hold a fight in Aston. I mean, great guys, young Marines. Um, but you know, we, we, uh, we, we just try to keep their memory alive and you know, it, it's, it's, it's yeah, refreshing you, you, and encouraging when, when you, somebody will reach out to you and say, Hey, they're dedicating a street and one of their names or an elementary school. And, you know, I Is try to right? make it. Yeah. Things like that, you know, where the community hasn't forgotten about them. And, uh, and, you know, when I go to, you know, headquarters and, and where they have pictures of all the fallen and then they relocated their headquarters, I'd go find it again and, you know, and take pictures of, of those three Marines that are on the wall and send it back to you know some, some of our Marines and said, Hey, I was up here and, Came to see, you know, a few of our boys. That's awesome. Yeah. Gary, thanks for the time, man. Yeah. It's uh, it's always a pleasure getting together with you. Um, now I can tell my mom that I've seen you. Yeah. Um, she's, I want to she, say hi to Katie. <laughs> she I will get a big Katie. kick out of that. Yeah. Katie, I hope you're listening. I'm keeping Todd in order. I know it's a full-time job, but yeah. I'm, I'm doing my best. She views you as a second son. She really does. He's awesome. Because her first one's failed her so much. So, you know, yeah. She has to. <laughs> well, 
It makes my job easy. (laughs) (laughs) Gary, thanks for being here, man. I really do appreciate it. All right. You got it. Thanks, Tom.